Welcome to the Pure Infrastructure Podcast. It's a podcast hosted by VMware and Pure Infrastructure Limited. Uh, the Pure Infrastructure Podcast basically chronicles the journey of CIOs in the East African region. Uh, Pure Infrastructure Limited is a managed services provider that helps companies figure out their journey to the cloud. VMware is a leading provider of virtualization and data center technologies, but has moved on to multi-cloud and software as a service in general. Um, today's guest is a repeat guest. It's uh, Tom Macau, who's the lead consultant at CPO Systems. Um, we are going to be discussing building resilience networks. Um, partly, the, the, the topic was motivated by the recent Facebook outage, and many people were wondering what was going on. Um, and so I was asked the question a number of times, and I kept saying, I'm not an expert <laughs> in this space. And so I figured I'd just get somebody who's been in the space for the last 15 plus years to just give us a sense of what was going on. Mm. So Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And uh, it's glad to be back again uh, to the podcast. And uh, as you've rightly said, um, this week we witnessed uh, something major yeah. where there was a total outage of the Facebook network. And by Facebook, we mean uh, the network that hosts Facebook, the social media platform, uh, Instagram, and, uh, and WhatsApp. Together with the other services that Facebook uh, provides, yeah. so uh, I think uh, as most people had uh, thought initially that it could have been uh, the work of a hacker, uh, Facebook later came out and said that uh, it was a network issue yeah. that led to to the downtime. And uh, the the problem that occurred was that. Uh, uh, they are, the way they run their networks is in such a way that they frequently carry out updates on the network. Uh, one thing you need to realize is that uh, Facebook, other than just providing the platform, is also heavily involved uh, in as far as setting up networks and data centers. And by networks, we mean both uh, local and international networks. So what had happened is that uh, uh, Facebook's uh, network engineering team uh, ended up uh, carrying out an update that affected the network and brought the network down. And that, of course, led to a cascade of events, which uh, to some of observers worsened the situation and uh, brought to fore the challenges that uh, network operators face. And basically, uh, the challenge is that uh, however resilient you build your networks, there will always be a point uh, of failure that was unforeseen. Yeah. Yeah. Black swan failure, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So in, in, the, in the case of Facebook, um, they used the BGP protocol to exchange information, uh, routing information together with other uh, internetworks. Okay. Yeah. So Facebook being part of the network that forms the internet needs to exchange uh, routing information or reachability information with other networks. And if other networks do not have a root map, so to speak, of how to get to Facebook services, eh, then the Facebook network, the Facebook service will be down for most of the users. So if a user seated in uh, Nairobi, for example, uh, and is connected to a local ISP, the local ISP uh, has within its own infrastructure uh, a route or an instruction of where to take the Facebook traffic to. And this route is always updated by Facebook themselves in terms of uh, uh, what are known as network uh, metric updates. 
in this situation um facebook network was down and therefore the other networks outside facebook that connect to it were unable to reach it now that was the first problem but the 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 problem that exacerbated the situation was caused by dns yeah. uh, if you look at the way uh, facebook has uh, hosted its uh, uh, domain names for example facebook.com that's that's a domain name and fb.com facebook itself is authoritative for its own domains in that the domain name system servers that know the answer to translate facebook.com to an ip address reside on the same facebook network and the challenges uh with most of the traffic globally today being uh, uh, uh social media yeah a huge percentage of traffic flowing globally social media on facebook and all that and with that it means that majority of the dns requests that are received even by isps let's say in kenya a huge chunk of it is to facebook and if you have an isp in kenya that uh, has a dns server that is providing services to its users mobile users home users and enterprise users eh? it is always the dns for this local isp is always speaking to the facebook dns in terms of getting uh, what are known as uh, name resolutions now in instances where this local isp's dns is unable to get an answer from the facebook server it will definitely send that request again so what had happened is that um, because the facebook network was down and all the other uh, international networks sending dns requests to the facebook servers were resending that message frequently there was now uh, a tsunami of dns requests again hitting the the facebook servers so uh, the facebook engineering team estimates uh, that traffic shot up 30 times yeah, yeah. so that is happening at the facebook level it is also happening at uh, the local isp level where devices your mobile phone my my, my tablet and my, and my laptop and all that because the page has timed out it will frequently send that query again and again to your local isp so the situation was that facebook network was down and because majority of the internet uh, dns servers process a lot of facebook uh, name resolution requests they were also affected by their own customers and you had reports of people saying some parts of the internet are also down that wasn't because of directly the facebook network being down but because the dns server that are supposed to process this request to other networks were also overwhelmed by this repetitive request so it it cascaded from just a simple network outage to what you'd call an unintended ddos <laughs> yeah mm. where every device on on the internet that has the facebook app or the instagram or whatsapp, WhatsApp yeah. was constantly bombarding their immediate dns with these requests mm. and overloading that network in that effect yeah. so um it took time for facebook to resolve the issue because number one the process uh Uh, that led to the outage meant that they could only do this while on site because the tools that they used to uh, manage the network remotely inadvertently also depended 
on these uh, domain names, on these domain name servers that were unavailable at this time. So if an, an engineer has uh, a URL like uh, consolemanagement.fb.com where he's supposed to manage, I'm not saying that is the, the URL, but for example, uh, the resolution of fb.com itself needed to be resolved by a service that is in the network that is down. So it, it, was a, it came full circle. <laughs> so yeah. they had to get to the, to the data center. Getting to the data center, it is not easy. For, for these uh, hyperscale data centers, it might take even 30 minutes to one hour to get clearance to get into the, into the IT equipment room. So that also delayed uh, the resolution. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it led to a six hour outage, yeah. which, which was unfortunate yeah. because um, if you look at it from the number of businesses that depend on the Facebook network uh, or the Facebook services, eh? uh, especially SMEs, they are greatly impacted by, by that downtime. Yeah. Okay. And so, what, you know, the thing is, like you've mentioned a few things, and maybe you could just touch on them slightly. Um, firstly, what what could they have done differently to avoid this situation? Because it seems that what they've done is um, akin to, you know, they hosted everything themselves uh-huh. and put themselves in a situation where if there's ever one failure, um, everything else is necessarily affected. Uh-huh. So what could they would dispersing this would you have you what what are the advantages of building an integrated stack like they have and what are the disadvantages of doing the same i, I think before i answer that you, you, we need to look at why facebook found itself in uh, in that situation okay uh with, with the rapid growth of uh, the social media platform uh, facebook found itself uh, expanding its uh, data center services and needed to serve more and more people as fast as they can. And uh, they got to a situation where the equipment they were buying from uh, uh, manufacturers or OEMs uh, wasn't coming to them fast enough and uh, wasn't uh, performing to the expectations. What do I mean by that? Uh, today, if you buy, let's say, um, let's say a switch that you want to put in your, in your data center from one of these large uh, OEMs like Cisco, Juniper, or, or the likes. Eh? Uh, this switch is designed to serve as many needs as possible for the market. So that you have a switch model X, which can do 50 things. Yeah? And, and uh, to do these 50 things, it needs a lot of memory, it needs a lot of uh, 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 compute and all that. Eh? Yet, in the data center that Facebook or any other provider is, is, is running, eh? maybe out of the 50 things that this switch can do, they only need like 10. Yeah? So they were paying for, for capability that they were not using within uh, their infrastructure. So uh, some years ago, Facebook uh, thought about it and uh, decided to set up what is known as the Open uh, Network Project. Uh, open compute project and in the open compute project what they were saying is that uh, we want to make equipment that will do exactly what we want it to do and in the process of making this we'll avail this knowledge that we are gaining from our R&D to the wider public and now there's a 
the, the, the Open Compute Project has several members uh, led by Facebook. So this enabled uh, Facebook to not only uh, decide what should run on the switches that they buy, but they made the switches themselves and went ahead and uh, now they even do things to do with the rack, uh, the racks within the data center, uh, storage and all that. So what was happening is that Facebook was now moving across the, the, the value chain. Whereas they were playing in one area of providing a certain type of service and depending on upstream and downstream uh, partners to supply the hardware, to supply connectivity, uh, to supply data center uh, facilities. Uh, what Facebook ended, ended up doing is that they were now manufacturing their own equipment uh, and putting a lot of R&D into it in terms of uh, making sure that the equipment is, is efficient enough. I'll give you an example. Uh, in, in, uh, in the Facebook data center, um, like if you look at uh, uh, the US system where they use 110 volts, while uh, the UK uh, system uses 240 volts. Yeah. Those two uh, were decided because of characteristics of the filament of a light bulb. The, the 110 and the 240 uh, were decisions made based on the material that was being used at that time to make uh, the filament of an incandescent bulb. Yeah. And that is the standard today. But when you look at uh, uh, computing, uh, through Facebook research, they found out that it's not efficient to do 110 or 240. So they came to a value, which is uh, uh, 277 volts. Mm -hmm. At 277 volts, running your data center at 277 volts, it is more energy efficient than running it at the standard out-of-socket voltage. Mm -hmm. That is one area. They also not just uh, worked on the, on the hardware and efficiency of uh, data centers. Eh? They also looked at uh, uh, utilization of resources in data centers. It's, it's through Facebook that uh, some of these um, uh, inventions or, or utilizations of data center uh, capacity uh, have been perfected. Um, most people would intuitively think that if you have a cluster of 10 servers and you have workload that can be served by three of the 10 servers, then you let the three servers do the work and let the other remaining uh, servers be idle. If you look at it carefully and look at the power consumption dynamics of that setup, eh, it is inefficient to have uh, a server operating at idle than operating at medium load. So what they discovered is, is a mechanism of making sure that they spread uh, uh, the workload received by a cluster across the whole cluster at medium load. That ends up saving them uh, uh, in terms of energy consumption than just having three servers doing all the work because, yeah. of, because of that and bringing in a fourth server when the workload crosses the threshold for three servers. Yeah. So all that uh, is, is, is from within Facebook's internal research. And they've gone a step further now, not just within the data center, they're now moved out. Uh, we, we are seeing partnerships um, between Facebook and other players when it comes to uh, international uh, undersea cables. Uh, there, are, there are many projects like the To Africa cable, which uh, is built to be the largest uh, subsea cable to land uh, in, in, in the continent. Um, 
and many other cables globally that are either wholly owned uh, by Facebook or used or leased uh, on, on long term uh, by them for their own private uh, traffic. So that, that has had an effect of um, consumers of Facebook services eh, uh, being served by Facebook across the entire value chain, okay. from the data center, and not just from the data center, from the hardware within the data center yeah. is made by Facebook, the racks within the data center, the networking equipment and everything within the data center is made by Facebook. Coming out of the, the data center itself is run by Facebook and, and even the systems. Um, the international networks that connect these various data centers globally to each other is essentially a private network owned by Facebook. Up to the point where uh, the ISP, the local ISP, uh, peers with Facebook. Yeah. Everything behind that is virtually within uh, Facebook script. So um, people might be worried, like, why are they doing that? It's, mm. it, it's, 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 um, it's not the first time that a company is doing that. Um, if you look at Ford, for example, Ford was making cars, but they moved up the value chain to start producing steel. Yeah. yeah? And it's because it was to their benefit to do that, to be able to... Uh, control the supply chain in terms of pricing, in terms of um, uh, delivery, in terms of quality. So that's what Facebook has been doing. Unfortunately, um, that comes with its own disadvantages, as, yeah. as we saw uh, on, on, on Monday during the downtime, yeah. that everything that Facebook provides to the market yeah. uh, runs within their own network. Yeah. So a question would be like, why didn't Facebook, for example, have the domain fb.com uh, have a different authoritative server other than one within Facebook? That's something to think about. Yeah. Um, and many other things. Uh, why does uh, the facebook.com domain have the TTL that it has to the point that every other... A DNS that caches uh, the response keeps it for about five minutes. Yeah. Why is it not longer? Yeah. yeah. So these are questions that come in when it, when when uh, you start uh, looking at uh, uh, how can these networks be made more resilient. Yeah. And <clears throat> the, the the answer is not very straightforward yeah. because at the altar of resilience, um, uh, the element of uh, flexibility also gets sacrificed. Because yes, uh, we can create a very resilient network, but it won't be as flexible as we want it to be. And it is in the interest of uh, a player such as Facebook to have a service that is resilient, that can respond quick to failures, mm. and that can uh, automatically identify problems and circumvent them and get them fixed automatically. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a balancing act between creating very res resilient networks yeah. and uh, having the same networks uh, become nimble enough yeah. for any changes that uh, might occur. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm. So the, the next question, obviously, um, will be how we can build such resilient networks in Africa and what your experience has been. 
But before we jump into that, we'll take a break for a word from our sponsors. Come back to the Pure Infrastructure Podcast, where we are interviewing Tom Macau, who's the lead consultant at CPA Systems. So we were talking about like the resilience around Facebook and how they built their network, um, and basically the trade-off they made between um, ease of managing the network and the infrastructure, and um, basically how what happens when there's a failure. So you've been in the space for a while, and you've built fiber networks, uh, satellite networks, normal, like, you've seen the entire smorgasbord of networks. Mm. What have you seen African providers and Kenyan providers in particular do, and what do you think they can do better, and why do they make the decisions they make around network infrastructure? Okay, that's... uh, It's a loaded question. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) a loaded question, but... uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try approach it from uh, a historical point of view. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the initial networks that connected Africa to the internet were, I would say, um, uh, they would often carry all the African traffic yeah. back to, let's say, Europe or, uh, or, or the Americas. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that has happened uh, since the arrival of these large international networks into the continent was the adoption of local uh, internet exchanges, where as much uh, African traffic as possible uh, does not leave the continent, and that most of it is exchanged locally. I'll give you an example. In, uh, before exchanges came in, if you were with ISPA on Mombasa Road, for example, and I am on ISPB in, 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 let's say, in CBD, and you send me an email, that email had to leave the continent to maybe where your ISP uh, terminates its traffic, which is maybe Europe. Yeah? And they would exchange traffic there with my upstream, excuse me, my upstream ISP and bring that traffic back again to, to me who seated in CBD. So your email essentially left the country left the continent, and then came back to me, yet we are in the same city. So that proved uh, very inefficient, and also the quality of service wasn't that good. So the first thing that, um, uh, that is commendable that African networks did is the establishment of local internet exchanges. That's, that's actually a major win. And uh, this, of course, took the effort of uh, ISP associations, like in Kenya, you look at the TESPOC, played a very key role in establishing... Uh, KXP, where the local ISPs are exchanging traffic without uh, leaving uh, the continent. Local traffic stays local. And this is happening in many countries. There are also large exchanges in, uh, that have come up in, in South Africa. We have the Napa Exchange and uh, in Djibouti, in, in, uh, in Cairo, and all those places. So what these exchanges do is uh, try to create an efficient way in which networks within Africa uh, communicate and exchange and exchange traffic. Um, the second thing, of course, uh, is infrastructure. Uh, the the setup of infrastructure in uh, in, in the continent uh, has often been uh, initially to satellite based, which, uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, most of it ended up in international networks anyway before coming back. So it is still the same story. So the the creation of local terrestrial networks or the setup of uh, uh, local uh, satellite hubs uh, enabled, um, from an infrastructure point of view, uh, local networks to exchange traffic more efficiently. Yeah? Um, 
today uh, if if Kenya for example is exchanging traffic with Tanzania uh, more often than not that traffic will pass via the Namanga route mm. to to get to Tanzania uh, which is a shorter and lower latency route compared to the traffic left Nairobi went to Mombasa went to the undersea cable uh, maybe went to Europe or the Middle East and then back to, to Tanzania so that interconnection within Africa is happening they, they, there's a lot of work happening by uh, major carriers such as liquid to try and interconnect the continent uh, east to west not to south uh, which will uh, will bring in a lot of value uh, in in as far as uh, improving the quality of service is concerned uh, when it comes to the resilience of the network service uh, you cannot get a very resilient network service if at the infrastructure level is also not as resiliently built though there are ways to go around it uh, to ensure uh, network resiliency with a lot of um, uh, fiber cuts for example in, uh, in in the continent due to various reasons more often than not uh, critical links are disrupted and to to establish that level of resiliency where uh an isp is able to continue providing services to its customers uh despite the severance of a critical link there are many things that come into play and at several layers the the, the first layer would be at the regulatory level where uh, the the regulators are encouraging infrastructure sharing so that if i am carrying my traffic to let's say to a data center I am at liberty and I can get very good um, competitive pricing from my competitor to also carry part of my traffic on their network that's one uh, infrastructure sharing also comes in play in terms of passive components like um, at, at a base station or at a, at a telco house uh, sharing um, cabinets and all that um, <clears throat> from a policy level then uh, there is at the commercial level where it, it might make sense for for provider to get capacity from his competitors opposed to building their own network uh, and if i can get capacity from three of my competitors to achieve what i would have achieved had i built my own network then it improves my resilience because now i have three routes as opposed to one that i own yeah so from from a commercial slash technical point of view there there is that that, that aspect and then also from uh, uh the user experience point of view it is in my interest as an isp to ensure that my customers get the best value uh, in terms of quality of service by taking them where they want to go as fast as possible i might not have the infrastructure uh or the capacity to do that but by uh designing my network in such a way that i'm able i'm able to exchange traffic uh with routes or with peers that can guarantee me uh and my customers uh, that service eh? then it really helps i'll give you an example uh today if you look at uh, at a wireless isp that serves let's say a certain part of nairobi this small wireless isp is that service states um they would often have uh, a large part of their clientele made up of uh, home users and majority of the home use traffic is social media facebook uh, instagram um, tiktok and 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 uh, video like like youtube and and, and netflix 
uh, if you look at the traffic profile, uh, about 70% of the traffic is made up of that, with about just 30% uh, actually being traffic that um, is enterprise in nature. Mm. Yeah, let me use that word. So this ISP is now able to give um, uh, a better quality of service because with the availability of local caching by these players, YouTube caching their services uh, in, in Nairobi, Facebook caching their services in Mombasa, uh, as a local ISP, wireless ISP, all I need to do is peer with them directly. And they're allowing <clears throat> free pairing. I, I don't have to pay per se, or I pay a very small fraction of, of the capability to peer uh, as opposed to buying that bandwidth. So that makes my users' uh, experience of these services much better than the traditional way. Yeah. So the local pairing and exchanging of traffic has really helped in, uh, in improving uh, uh, network performance. And also it has helped in improving uh, resilience of services because uh, in, in pairing with, the, for example, um, uh, Facebook in this case, uh, I would definitely be pairing with them from a data center that they're located. So that reduces or diminishes the chances that there could be a fiber cable going to where uh, Facebook is that could be down due to one reason or the other. So that, that has really helped. And uh, the, the, the growth of data centers within uh, the continent has really helped that because now that we have uh, world-class data centers, uh, Tier 3 and, and the, the likes, um, that provide uh, the uptime that these uh, players are looking for, it is now possible to, for them to come in and host this content locally. And that, again, improves the resilience because now you do not have all users going to TikTok on a single cable going to Mombasa. Hmm. Yeah, it's spread across. Some are getting into the data center via ISP1, hmm. some are getting via the other ISP and all that. So the, that, that has helped. The other thing that I think uh, now um, local ISPs need to, to work on is uh, uh, when it comes to um, capacity. In as much as all this is happening, uh, there are some capacity constraints uh, as far as uh, bandwidth is concerned. Um, you'll realize that um, it's only in the last two years or so that we've had some of our networks uh, backbones being upgraded to anything above 100 G. Yeah, uh, most of them were 10 gig. Yeah, and that is actually, uh, if you look at it carefully, that, that's one of the reasons that has slowed down 4G uptake in the country, 4G rollout, because as as a mobile operator, yes, I want to launch 4G in uh, Isiolo. Yeah, but the backbone from Isiolo coming to Nairobi. Uh, passes through maybe the central region, picks up traffic there as it comes towards uh, uh, Nairobi. Uh, 10G will not be sufficient if everyone along the path is, is on 4G and wants that user experience. So that has been a bottleneck, but that now we are seeing uh, upgrades happening of uh, backbone networks to above 100G. Uh, and that is now sparring uh, the growth of technologies such as 4G and are now 5G coming. So there is a lot that has been done, uh, but there is still a lot to be done in as far as capacity is concerned. Yeah. 
our my biggest fear of uh, uh, the networks that we have uh, in, in in the continent or in in the country is a capacity bottlenecks. Okay. Mm. So that, that leads me to that sort of two questions I wanted to ask. Um, I think let me let me just start with the first one. Mm. Um, so you know there, there was a lot of noise earlier in the year mm-hmm. about Safaricom bring uh, you know capping um, how much you could you could transfer in a link um, and many ISPs have had fair use policies um, for a very long time but they're very quiet about it yeah um, and one of the things that I felt was not very clear is how much does it actually cost to roll out these services because if people are reticent to make the investments and say they're backbone upgrades is it because they are greedy or is it because it costs a lot of money um, let me first go to the first item that you mentioned about yeah. fair use policy. Now, um, a network is, is a shared resource yeah. that uh, all the users uh, share. And by shared resource, most people only think in terms of bandwidth. Yeah. That, oh, so my 10 Mbps that I'm buying from you is shared. It's a shared resource from a bandwidth point of view and also from a compute point of view that router or that switch that is seated somewhere giving you your 10 Mbps and my 10 Mbps, or whatever Mbps we, we bought, eh, mm. is a finite device. It, it has finite CPU, finite RAM, finite number of sessions it can handle, yeah. and, uh, and all that plays into the quality of service that, 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 that I enjoy. And if you have instances where uh, a user ends up hogging most of those resources, then it becomes unfair to the other user. You might have one user uh, taking up 50% of the resources that have been allocated to 10 users. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So the other nine users are getting a very bad experience, and it's not in the interest of this provider to have that situation happen. Yeah. So fair use policy is not really more about capping your usage, but about striking a balance between uh, how much investment we should do in a network vis-a-vis what we are getting out of it uh, in as far as revenues and sustain these revenues or grow them by making sure that the quality of service that we are giving these users is not compromised. Yeah, So you can have a user uh, on 2MBPS link, eh? causing a lot of havoc on the network. Uh, not because he's using more than two Mbps, but because within that two Mbps, he has over 3,000 sessions going on, maybe for BitTorrent, just as an example. So three, these 3,000 sessions on this two Mbps link actually being handled by a device on one end. This device has to utilize memory, it has to utilize CPU uh, to serve this user for what they're doing. So fair use policy comes into play to ensure that at no given time, a user uh, uses the service in such a way that it compromises the quality of service of the other user. It's, it's, it's a collective effort. It's, it's a collective uh, utility that needs to be managed well. And maybe it's, it's the way it's been uh, uh, interpreted that if, if, I've, if I've paid you for a 10 Mbps link, 
I expect to do 10 Mbps at any given time, yeah? But unfortunately, uh, we, we carried over uh, what I would call as legacy uh, parameters of defining networks from the voice era into, uh, into the internet era, where uh, the, the quality of a voice call was determined by the, the bandwidth you gave it, and maybe the sampling, that sampling rate if you're converting it into, into digital. Yeah? Yeah. So if you use a higher sampling rate, you need a higher bandwidth to, to transmit that voice call. If you use lower sampling rate, you need less bandwidth. Yeah. So by default, most uh, copper lines were 64 kbps. Yeah. Yeah? And that was like the default internet link that you'd buy when internet came 64 mm -hmm. kbps. So we carried that um, definition across yeah. to, to data services where we define the quality we, we we define the quality or the quantity of service we give a customer based on bandwidth it is like defining the amount of water you need to pay uh, the, the water bill that you need to pay based on the diameter of your pipe that comes to your house yet your water bill is based on the liters or meters cube of water consumed in a month yeah. it's not based on how wide your pipe is yeah, yeah? It is how much water you, you, you've consumed that you pay for. So that is the approach that ISPs need, need, need to, to, to look at. And it comes into play, especially when you're dealing with wireless networks, where the wireless spectrum, uh, based on the technology you're using, can only carry so much. And if you're not careful, you might end up uh, providing very poor quality of service because you're not reining in this uh, occasional users who end up uh, destroying the service for everyone because they are hogging up resources. Yeah. They, they would maybe stick on a frequency for too long or maybe transmit at a much higher power than required, therefore drowning out the others. There are so many factors that come into play. And many things that are done by a provider. For example, there, there was a time that uh, people were wondering, why, why are the mobile operators after Chinese phones? Yet those are the devices we can afford, yeah? It's because initially, at that time, things have changed now. At that time, majority of the devices that were of Chinese origin were poorly designed uh, in terms of uh, how they interact with the base station, uh, in terms of how much power they transmit uh, to the base station and, and all that. So th there was a lot, there was a lot, and there was also the element of the fact that uh, uh, you, you could easily change the IMA number from, from those phones and all that. So you could have a phone with Chinese characters on it as the, as the brand name, eh? but when you check the IMA, it belongs to a Nokia phone. So <laughs> it brought all those sorts of problems. But at the end of the day, the, the operator is after ensuring that uh, the quality of service that they are giving to everyone on the network uh, remains at a level where they can sustain their revenues and get more customers coming in to use this service. And it's, it's a very fine uh, balance between uh, spending a lot of money to ensure a certain type or level of service vis-a-vis -vis trying to balance out the needs for all these users that are on your network. So uh, <coughs> the, the, the second question... Uh, no, the first was just mm -hmm. generally on the... Fair, and then the second one was how expensive is it to actually roll out these networks? Uh, yes. Now... 
Um, by by expense, you need to realize that um, we we when you're rolling out, uh, let's say a fiber network, there there is a lot of supporting infrastructure that needs to go with it. Uh, everything, including the roads that these field technicians need to take when going to lay this cable, uh, the availability of electricity, um, availability of resources within the country, and all that. So um, it is expensive to, to roll out infrastructure in the, in, 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 in the, in the continent. And uh, if, if you look around, only the, the very large players who, can, who have access to uh, good funding, uh, sources of funding, are able to roll out uh, large-scale uh, projects in, in the continent as far as connectivity is concerned. And there are several of them in, in the market. Uh, but that, that's changing. And um, uh, it's changing from the perspective that um, <clears throat> there is a realization that uh, for the African IT space to grow, uh, we must invest in the infrastructure. Yeah. And before any provider wants to play at the services level, they must make sure that they have invested enough in infrastructure. In the short term, it might look like it's expensive, but in the long term, yeah, it, it pays off. And, and it's happening. Look around. <clears throat> if you look at um, uh, Safaricom, they've rolled out an extensive 4G, 3G network uh, across the country. They've rolled out fiber, uh, and now, after that, it is now when they are looking at ways of monetizing that uh, infrastructure. You opening your phone and opening up uh, the little app, the little cab app, to, to get a cab or to order uh, some food delivery, is actually them utilizing the infrastructure that they've laid. You see, they, they do not now have to come and sell you a pipe to the internet. They are now selling you a service on top of that. And them doing enterprise uh, network services, uh, uh, enterprise uh, IT services, digital transformation, is all because they have the infrastructure. The same thing even with the players like Liquid Telecom, who are now uh, Liquid Intelligent Technologies. Uh, they have done nothing as far as laying the foundational infrastructure. Now, the story of selling you capacity uh, no longer makes business sense as such. So they need to move up the, the scale to offer you services. And that is what they're doing now. So it is important that uh, uh, ISPs or uh, telcos uh, lay infrastructure, but it should not be laid with the mind of recouping an in, uh, the return on investment purely on selling the network service itself but building services on top of it. And if you look at it that way, then it, there's, there's incentive to, to build these networks with the knowledge that um, uh, what you are riding on is not selling capacity or fractions of this network to users, but selling services on top of that. So it's quite similar to how basically Safaricom rolled out a 2G network and then PESA basically rolled on top of it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, finally, like you said that the networks here grew, evolved in a different way. Mm -hmm. How did networks in other parts of the world evolve? Um, <clears throat> I think there's only this story of Africa having leapfrogged the, the copper lines yeah. and moved straight into mobile. That's, that's a feel-good story to tell. Mm -hmm. 
but it had its downsides yeah. in terms of um, the the infrastructure uh, that was needed initially to offer these uh, copper uh, networks uh, was largely absent in Africa. So when you talk of extending terrestrial networks to areas that had never even had copper, there are challenges that come with that uh, in terms of uh, availability of, um, of waylifts, for example, um, people's understanding of what this service is. Yeah. Um, one reason why there are outages in Africa uh, due to f network f cable cuts is because people do not understand the significance of that cable that was dug across your land by some guys who came here in luminous suits and helmets. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. They don't make the connection between the Mpesa message they receive or the WhatsApp message they receive from their loved one to to that cable passing under there. So next time he's making bricks, he'll dig the same place and start making bricks and ending up cutting, cutting out communication. So there's that aspect that uh, we, we never had the advantage of having these legacy networks that people understood their, their, their value. And we jumped straight into where we are currently. Um, there is a lot of work to be done in as far as um, uh, rolling out uh, uh, network infrastructure in Africa. Uh, a lot has been done, uh, uh, and there is talk of leapfrogging again from 3G to 5G. That's still uh, up for debate. But the revolution that is going to 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 come, or the revolution that is coming, uh, is pegged on wireless networks. Be they 5G, be they low earth orbit satellites, uh, be they the now uh, failed Google Loon. There are many others that will come like that. This is just the beginning. Uh, if you compare to other countries where the foundational infrastructure was there, um, if you lay a cable, if you wanted to lay a cable from city A to B, you do not need to do actual physical trenching, digging an actual trench all the way. The conduits already exist under the roads. It's easier for for, for an ISP to, to lay its cable because uh, the structures are there, the infrastructure is, is shared, maybe owned by the municipality uh, or owned by a common uh, uh, player who then sells this service to, to everyone. So we are not there yet. Then the other thing I think that is working to our disadvantage is our licensing regimes. Uh, it is very easy and um, to, to, to set up a network within a country. But when it comes to creating an Africa-wide network, there are so many things that come into play. Uh, one is the licensing. Um, there are needs for us to advance as fast as we want. We need to relook at how uh, our telco ISP licensing regime across Africa uh, uh, works. There's need to harmonize. It should be easy for an ISP in Tanzania to roll out infrastructure in South Sudan or Kenya or Mozambique. It should be easy for an ISP in Uganda to come roll out infrastructure here. Uh, but our licensing structure currently does not favor that. Yeah. So um, whereas if you look at 
the United States, it's, it's a different story from a federal point of view. If you look at the European Union, it's a different story. It's easy for uh, Deutsche Telekom to go lay out or set up infrastructure in another European country uh, than it is, for example, for uh, an operator in Kenya to go lay out infrastructure in Somalia or Tanzania. Yeah. So uh, licensing is, is, is something that uh, I think is um, the regulatory framework, basically, needs to, to be harmonized to ensure that uh, it makes it easier. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if I, if I get you straight like that, just to paraphrase it, the legacy networks basically provided a framework that modern ISPs could use. So it's cheaper for them to roll out than it is for Kenyan or African ISPs for that matter. Because we have to start by building the ducts themselves, which yes. is where most of the cost is in the build out. Yes. And secondly, just we have a very fragmented regulatory framework. So it's not easy for you to build a network with one standard, knowing yeah. that the next country will have a similar uh, standard. So you can just find completely different policy yeah. Yeah, environments. And that, okay. that plays also into the quality of service. Eh? Yeah. Uh, you have instances where um, uh, an ISP is serving, let's say, um, a global client with, uh, with branches across, let's say, several countries in Africa. But to get into some countries, uh, this ISP runs a very good network, reliable, but at the hand of a point getting into country X, you need to hand over to the government incumbent whose quality of service is, yeah. is not guaranteed, whose uh, operational procedures and processes yeah. are not top-notch. Yeah. So again, uh, you end up not delivering the QS you promised your customer across the continent because of such things. Uh, this protectionist kind of um, regulations need to be reviewed as fast as possible. Uh, and um, we need to also take advantage. The other thing that we, need, we, we can do very well in Africa is take advantage of uh, our existing uh, or currently being set up a power infrastructure network. Um, I'll give you an example in, 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 in Kenya, for example. Uh, uh, Ketrako and Kenya Power are members of uh, what is known as the Eastern Africa Power Pool yeah, in that they can buy and exchange power across them. And the effect of them being members of the East Africa Power Pool means they're interconnected across uh, all these countries uh, in, in as far as power lines is concerned and also in as far as uh, fiber optic networks are concerned. Because remember, most of this uh, power infrastructure has uh, a fiber optic, the, uh, what's known as the OPGW, mm. uh, which is the fiber optic link that is used for monitoring the network itself. Mm. And there's also excess capacity that can be used for commercial use and data, mm. uh, tr uh, transmitting of data traffic. So that gives an opportunity for players across Africa to set up a resilient network uh, on the, uh, uh, very easily. And I, I, I believe uh, that's, that's one, uh, I would say, low-hanging fruit. So uh, if an ISP here needs co to connect to DRC, instead of thinking of putting that investment first uh, under the ground through digging of trench, trenching all the way, mm. is does any of this players in the in the power space have 
capacity or fiber capacity to DRC or somewhere near mm. from where we can build on. Yeah. So that, there is that. We, we can take advantage of that. And uh, the railway lines that we are building around uh, can easily be done with the fiber optic cabling uh, inbuilt yeah. uh, to, to transmit uh, data across yeah. all those regions. Yeah. Uh, remember our, our initial, if you look at the initial railway lines in Africa, they, they were mostly built from an, an extractive point of view. Yeah. They were yes. all starting somewhere and ending at, this, at the, the cost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? If you look at the original map, yeah. It starts from Kisumu, ends in Mombasa. Ends in Mombasa. Yeah. Starts somewhere in Tanzania, ends at, at the at the at the port in in, uh, in in Dar es Salaam or somewhere. So that didn't help much because the initial use of that railway line was for extractive purposes mm. more. Yeah, but with the new railway uh, being set up, uh, there are plans to interconnect the Kenyan SGR to the Ugandan one, and so on and so forth. Uh, their plans to do pipelines uh, across um, uh, uh, from the oil fields uh, in Tanzania, in Uganda, in Kenya. Those pipelines will come with fiber optic uh, networks. Yeah. We need to plan around that and utilize that. Yeah. Yeah? There's no reason why uh, large swaths of South Sudan should be in the dark as far as internet is concerned because they rely mostly on satellite. Yet they have pipelines running all the way to uh, to, to the Red Sea. Yeah. yeah. That have capacity that yeah. can be utilized. Yeah. yeah. I think it took liquid taking cable there for them to be uh, on uh, off satellite uh, internet. Yeah. Yeah. So those are things that we need to look at. It it it. Uh, in short, this play is not going to be a private sector only play. Yeah. It has to involve the government yeah. uh, and semi-government organizations like oil pipeline companies, power transmission companies, which are mostly uh, government or semi-government owned. It has to involve the private sector. Uh, it has to involve financiers. Because if, if I'm a financier financing a, a pipeline, and I'm also thinking of financing a fiber cable to a private player, I could easily combine these two into one project and achieve the same results at a much lower cost. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this cost um, uh, benefits end up benefiting the, yeah. the, the consumer. Yeah. So it, it, it's, a, it's a multi-pronged approach from both private sector. Private sector cannot do it on its own. Yeah. Uh, they, they might have the money, but yeah. they might not have the goodwill uh, or the, the, the diplomacy required to, to make it work, especially across countries. Yeah. Uh, government might have the, the goodwill and, uh, and uh, the, the links to make it work, but they yeah. might not have the money yeah. or the operational capacity to, to run those networks yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So um, we've made a lot of progress as, as Africa in as far as building a resilient networks is concerned. Yeah. And this is purely from a physical point of view. Yeah. When it comes to the service level, you know, the, there's the resilience from a physical point of view and also from a service level point of view. The need to exchange traffic locally cannot be overemphasized. Yeah. The need to create local internet exchanges. Yeah. yeah. There's absolutely no reason why my traffic from Nairobi to Central Africa Republic should go around the continent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? There's absolutely no reason why 
uh, my email from Nairobi going to DRC, Kinshasa, yeah. uh, should go around the continent. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Once we build resilient networks within the continent, yeah. uh, uh, we'll see a lot of things. There'll be an explosion of, of, uh, of use cases for, for these networks and the services that will be built on top. Yeah. Uh, remember, a service like Uber or, um, or Little Cab could not happen without 4G. Yeah. You couldn't that do that on 3G networks, yeah? yeah? Uh, because it, would, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And the 3G phones were also not capable of doing that. Yeah. So these services that we are seeing happen, you couldn't order food mm. uh, on an app on the, on the 3G network. Yeah. You only yeah. did that from 4G onwards and uh, home, home internet. So uh, there's going to be a growth of um, the use of these networks. There's yeah. usually the, the fear that we might invest in these networks and then what, what happens next. But if you look at it from the point of selling capacity, mm-hmm. you miss. I, you'll miss the point. Yeah. But if you look at it from creating a, a platform from which services can be layered upon, yeah. Yeah? Don't, don't create a 4G network to sell to, to Anjiko yeah. as 4G, as fast internet. Yeah. Create a 4G network to enable Wanjiku do a boutique business straight from her house yeah. without incurring the cost of rent, yeah. without incurring all the other risks associated with the, and the cost associated with starting a small boutique and so on. Yeah. So that's the approach that uh, uh, African operators uh, or network providers need, need, need to have. Yeah. Yeah. Move away from the network yeah. and, and focus on the services. Yeah. And naturally, you'll find yourself expanding the network without a worry about uh, the level of investment that's happening. Okay, so just to sum it up, um, work with government, find ways of driving down the cost of rolling out the network yeah. um, and focus on the services as that's what will fill up your pipes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom, for showing up for this podcast episode. Thank you. Um, that's it for the fifth uh, episode of our podcast. We'll be back with an interview.